Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Behind that ideology that says that here, aquí no hay racismo, we, here we have no racism. Todos tenemos un poco de cada cosa en nuestra sangre, en nuestras venas. Uh, we all have a little bit of uh, all the blood in our veins, so that's why there is no racism here. was, in fact, a big lie, because uh, uh, behind that, uh, in the uh, everyday realities, you had uh, abject practices of discrimination and, uh, in some cases, you know, brutality in an unjust system vis-à-vis uh, non-white and non-white, non-white mestizo population. Welcome to the Mamas con Ganas podcast. That's mamas as in, hey mama, y te traemos episodios para que tengas las ganas de motivarte, surgir y triunfar. Don't be a mama con drama. Let's be mamas con ganas. I'm your host, Valentina Izara. On today's podcast, of Mamas con Ganas, I'm interviewing Professor John Muteba Raye, Professor of Anthropology in African and African Diaspora Studies, Director of the Observatory of Justice for Afro-Descendants in Latin America, otherwise known as Ojala, and Professor Raye is also an author in many books. Thank you so much, Professor, for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Mamacita, I really, I'm really excited about bringing this topic and Professor Rahier in particular because I wanted to, you know, this is an ongoing discussion. The, the discussion that I'm having about racism on my platform is not something that's going to just be in fashion right now and then it's going to go away. I believe it's a topic that's very, very important for us to discuss. And I wanted to bring somebody who is a specialist in the topic. And Professor Rahier is definitely a specialist. I was looking him up. I said, I have to interview him because not, not only does he um, specialize in multiculturalism in Latin America, but also ethno-racial law in Latin America. And his organization, Ojala, is actually doing something very real to help um, you know, discrimination, to help get rid of discrimination in Latin America. So, Professor, before we go on into, you know, educating our audience and enlightening them on all the things that you know about racism in Latin America, can you tell us a little bit about your background, where you come from, and then also why you're so passionate about this subject? Uh, thank you very much for the question. Um, the... I was born um, in the Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Congo DRC, at the end of the colonial period, uh, 1959. And, uh, but I grew up in Belgium. My parents, uh, my father was a, uh, a colonial man and my mother a colonized uh, woman. And uh, I grew up uh, in Belgium till I went to uh, university in Belgium and my graduate school I did it in Paris. And basically, I have been interested in the African diaspora in Latin America uh, because for personal reasons, 
that I could explain, but it's, it might be too long. Uh, I identified very much with the diaspora, with the, uh, the African diaspora, and particularly in the Americas, um, much more so than with uh, the, the Congolese community uh, that was living in Belgium at the time of, of my youth, uh, for a number of reasons. And so um, the displacement uh, uh, of the communities of the African diaspora in, in, the, in the Americas uh, was a um, was a source of uh, uh, inspiration and, and identification. Uh, I identified very much with their displacement, and uh, that is what uh, led me to be interested in Latin America when I went to school uh, at the university, and that's what uh, uh, you know led me to at some point uh, go to Ecuador and uh, do my uh, doctoral dissertation on uh, and. and um, a black community in the province of Esmeraldas in, in the northern uh, part of Ecuador. But my very first time in Latin America, as a young person, I was uh, and a young person who, who, had the, the, who was facing the issues of racism uh, back then in, 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 in Belgium. It's, it's basically anti-racism that led me to to get involved in that. Uh, now, um, so let's let's talk a little bit about racism in Latin America, because because I know that a lot of a lot of Latin Americans are very much opposed to even the idea that it even actually exists. I know, I mean, I'm Venezuelan. I know a lot of Venezuelans who say racism doesn't exist. A lot of Latin Americans in general kind of deny its existence. Can you give us a little bit of the background? Um, and because I know we, we had a conversation before, and this can go on for a very long time, but a very important movement happened in Latin America during the 1980s and all of that. So sort of give us a little backdrop as to racism in Latin America. Yes. Um, so if we, when we think about the uh, race relations uh, uh, in, in, in Latin America, uh, in Latin American societies, which are settler societies, just like um, the United States is, which is that these are societies that um, became independent and, um, and was led since the, the, the end of obtention of independence by the groups of, um, of, of settlers uh, who, who were living there. And this is a very different set of independences that you had in Africa, for instance. In Africa, the indigenous people became independent and pushed away the, the colonizers and the, the settlers uh, in, in some cases. Uh, in, in Latin America, is the settlers who, who became independent and the racial order that had been taking place during the colonial period remained in place where you had the, the descendants of the Spaniards who were the, the, the criollos uh, remained in charge uh, and became, and the uh, indige indigenous Native Americans and, and um, blacks. Uh, so there's different, were there different hierarchies and different groups of people of, that were classed as a, as a specific and given a specific identity? Yeah, so you, uh, that's how you have the, the birth of the, the, the white or, or white mestizo uh, elite in, in Latin America uh, come, come out of those who were in charge of the colonial, you know, colonial economy uh, at the time and who, uh, you know, and the descendants uh, remained in charge and, and run the societies. And the, the, the people who were at the bottom, their employees or their, their slaves, uh, kept the same position. Nothing changed for them. Independence didn't, uh, uh, you know, really 
transform the racial order of Latin American societies that had been taking shape during the, the, the colonial period. So the interesting thing uh, then, it, it, I'm, I'm talking here very generally, taking the entire region. Now, of course, we, we have to think, uh, we have to be aware of the fact that each uh, national context in Latin America is different. So you, we cannot make it difficult to make a generalization. But I, I'm talking about the, nonetheless, I'm, I'm talking about the entire region now. And what, uh, so these things has happened differently in different national contexts, but what has happened is that the uh, leaders of the independences in Latin America then uh, began developing after independence uh, what has been called uh, the ideology of mestizaje, which is a, an ideology that, that of national identity. And they were preoccupied by, uh, you know, presenting their individual nations as uh, profoundly different from uh, Spain and from European uh, nations. And in what way they different? They were different because they had uh, somewhat uh, incorporated Indian uh, blood. That's what uh, ideology of mestizaje. Mestizaje referring to the very specific uh, race mixing, which uh, is between uh, Spaniards or Europeans and uh, indigenous or Native Americans. And, and leaving uh, uh, um, outside the, the, in general, the blacks. Now, of course, Cuba, there are some, some exceptions. In Cuba, mestizaje means uh, uh, somewhat different from what it means in, uh, in the Andean region, for instance. But, but in general, so they, they then developed these ideologies of mestizaje saying that we are, uh, you know, we are all uh, mixed up and, uh, but, and there is no racism in our societies, uh, unlike what's going on in, uh, in uh, North America. And, and we are basically profoundly different societies from those societies because of that uh, mestizaje. So there was some sort of a celebration of Native American and white uh, mixing um, at the detriment of, of Including uh, Afro Afro descendants, and um, with this ideology, uh, there was no uh, acknowledgement of the presence or contribution of uh, Afro descendants or even uh, uh, indigenous peoples. In what in my work I call the ideological biology of national identity, included indigenous people only in so, so long as they were going through the process of blanqueamiento, the process of whitening, either uh, or usually both kinds of whitening, which is uh, biologically, which is marrying right, para mejorar la raza, it's an expression. Sí, which is a big expression in Latin America, to, yeah. better, to better the race, for those of yeah. you who don't speak Spanish, is a very well-known term everywhere, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it's blanqueamiento, a process of whitening, but also through cultural whitening, which is that by adopting, um, you know, European ways of uh, being in the world. Through perhaps, I, I imagine so, is very much uh, through religion, right? And the, and the holidays. Religion, uh, religion uh, a whole bunch of uh, all areas, uh, even table manners, uh, the way of uh, dressing uh, and so on, you know, so... So, um, but this ideology had for 
consequence that it was invisibilizing, making invisible the communities of indigenous people who were not uh, mixing and uh, as well as the Afro-descendants who were not included within. And so uh, that's why, uh, you know, in many Latin American countries, uh, black social movements in the 70s were fighting against their invisibilization because the story, the official story about the nation back then was a nation in which you only had uh, mestizos and white, white mestizos and the contribution of, of Afro-descendants was never uh, really acknowledged. And so, so this is the reality that, that, that is in a way or other characterizing the entire region. Uh, ideology of mestizaje in Spanish-speaking Latin America, an ideology of uh, democracia racial in Brazil, but which is also based on uh, racial mixing, you know, where you have some sort of a uh, celebration uh, ideologically of racial mixing. But uh, in the facts, uh, uh, you had, uh, you know, very acute uh, practices of discrimination. Now, now that, okay, let me kind of summarize to make sure that I understand what you're saying. You're saying, okay, so the Spaniards came and they colonized uh, the Americas when the Americas and the settlers wanted to gain independence as a way to sort of adopt an, a national identity. Because at that point they said, okay, well, you're Spaniard and I'm Colombian, Venezuelan, Argentine, or whatever it was. And when they did that, they sort of said, okay, well, I guess the, idea, the ideal of what we are is a mix between the Spaniards and, and the Indians. And as so long as they mix with us, they can fit into that national identity. But the Afro-descendants were basically marginalized out of that identity. And also the Indians who were not mixing with the Spaniards or with the, the race that was lighter were also sort of marginalized and put aside. And they, they didn't fit into that ideology of what it meant to be Colombian, Venezuelan, Brazilian, or so on, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. That's exactly, you got, it, you got it exactly right. So behind... That ideology that says that uh, here, aquí no hay racismo, we, here we have no racism. Todos tenemos un poco de cada cosa en nuestra sangre, en nuestras venas. Uh, we all have a little bit of uh, all the blood in our veins, so that's why there is no racism here. Was, in fact, a big lie, because uh, uh, behind that, uh, in the uh, everyday realities, you had uh, abject practices of discrimination, and, uh, and, 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 and in some cases, you know, brutality in an unjust system vis-a-vis uh, non-white and non-white non-white mestizo population. That's very interesting because you're, you know, there it is, you know, in a way we are a a population that has more mix. Would you say we have more mix than in in the North America, for example? Well, now you're seeing more mix here, but in the past, would you say that Latin America was mixing more? Than the United States or not? No, no, no I don't. I don't. Uh, no, because the systems are, are, are completely different. different. It's a bit different. But but the, what, what I'm trying to say is that the story that we are all mixed was a subterfuge, a, a, an, an occasion was used in order to mask and hide the actual uh, reality for the Afro descendants. Of the okay. Order. Uh, of, of the racial order in this society. Which I've, I've learned a word that I had never learned before, which was the word pigmentocracy. Yes. So okay. this is sort of a racial, uh, can you tell us a little bit what pigment, what is pigmentocracy? 
pigmentocracy refers to uh, to basically the, the the existence of a racial order is that the the refers to the fact that a very particular a specific pigment, which is understood as being a white phenotype or, uh, or skin color, um, is on top, and it's it's a it's an expression that is used to refer to to the fact that you have a very high correlation in Latin American countries between social classes and ethno-racial identity. So the higher you go in the socio-economic political ladder, the lighter you will find individuals, and the lower you go, uh, the browner and blacker uh, these individuals will be on the socio-economic So in other words, it, the darker you are, the more likely you are to be poor and uneducated. And the lighter you are, the more social and economic power you're more likely to have. Is that correct? Exactly, exactly. And then, of course, with all of that, uh, with that system in place, you had also the development of a number of stereotypical representations of uh, the, the people, of the various people living together in that society. Uh, in which white folks were represented and are, have been represented as more educated, more polite, more proper, and so on, uh, while uh, Afro-descendants, for instance, have been depicted as rapists, social predators, thieves, and so forth and so on. The uneducated and, and dangerous individuals. And so these are representations that, in fact, and this, I, I've done some work on representations of black people in the press in Ecuador. Oh, yes, that was very interesting. Tell us a little bit about that, because um, I don't know if anybody, if any mamacita, I'm sure you do, because we're all soccer players, soccer lovers in Latin America, and we watch the World Cup. So your study, was it on the, on the, on the, on the, on the soccer players, right? One of your yeah. studies? No, no. I, I done. Yeah, I worked on uh, on um, on the um, participation of Ecuador in the 2006 World Cup. And those who, who, who like football will remember uh, that, or soccer will remember that uh, the the performance of the Ecuadorian team was very good and yes. quite surprising at, the, at that World Cup. And uh, and they they went far, particularly thanks to the performance of uh, Afro-Ecuadorian players. Uh, yes, yes. Tin, El famoso Tim Delgado, who was the, the, uh, the peak of his career back then, and uh, who the, I've, I've done some, some research on the, on the, on the way um, uh, you know, people in uh, social media and in the press were writing and talking about uh, the team, even though uh, the team was bringing a lot of pride, uh, national pride to Ecuador. Nonetheless, in these messages that I, at which I look, uh, I'd be glad to send you, by the way, that piece, I should have sent it to you. <laughs> we can share it. Send it to me and we'll put it on the blog. Actually, yeah. it, now that you're reminding me, I'm going to be sending, I'm going to be attaching links to a lot of Professor Rahia's articles and the stuff that he does, because what you can learn is so fascinating. Mahapa, go ahead with your story. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, so, and then basically you could see that the way uh, journalists or people in, in general were writing about the performances and the matches in which Ecuador was participating was reproducing uh, that externality, that non-citizenship of Afro-descendants. 
you know. Uh, Non-citizenship. So oh, it's yeah. almost like they were not seen as being Ecuadorian. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's exactly right. Not almost. They were seen. Uh, so even, uh, you know, progressive intellectuals were, uh, by, without realizing it, uh, were, were reproducing that externality to, to citizenship that uh, Afro-Ecuadorian were, were basically suffering from. The stereotyping and the, the, the way, uh, you, you understand, the lives of uh, Afro-descendants are made sense of by non-Afro-descendants in these contexts, racist contexts, anti-Black racist contexts, is, is very brutal, you know, and can uh, be, have uh, profound effects on the lives of, uh, of those who are subjected to, you know. And so uh, I, I then engaged in, in, in demonstrating, this was, I also engaged in, in looking at the representation of Black people in the press in Ecuador in general, independently from football. The representation of, of as a matter of fact, of, of, of Afro-descendants as football player is part of the, the stereotypical representation because you have usually uh, Afro-descendants are represented as good in two things, sport and, um, and music. And music. And so for the rest of, uh, of, 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 of everything else, they, they are uh, basically uh, looked at, as if, if they go in these spaces as out of place, they, they, they've had to, uh, to, to suffer, you know, a lot of uh, bad treatment. But so, so the, the period of ideological mestizaje, uh, which goes from the independences to uh, the 1980s, was a period that I call monocultural mestizaje, where uh, the population of nation states uh, are imagined as being homogeneous, as being all mestizos. You know, this is part of the ideology that I was just talking about. But then there is something very interesting that takes place uh, beginning in the uh, late 1980s and mostly in the, in the 1990s and still ongoing now, which has been, uh, there has been what scholars have been referring to, a multicultural turn in, in the region. And uh, that multicultural turn um, uh, was characterized by uh, a change uh, of uh, constitutions, uh, adoption of new constitutions or the adoption of constitutional reforms, as well as the adoption of special laws that um, recognize uh, the existence for the first time in the constitutions, usually in the first articles of the new constitution, uh, the, the multi multiracial, multicultural, plurinational, some will, will, will use that vocabulary, character of these national populations. So we are not, with a multicultural turn, the official story or the official, official history of these nation states is no longer uh, characterized by reproduction, a reproduction of the ideology of mestizaje, but now recognizes the existence of indigenous people and Afro-descendants uh, along with white and white mestizos. You understand? So- And why do you, why do you have this happen in that time period? Why, why were the 1980s the time where this took place? There are various factors uh, to explain that. You have on one side the activism of indigenous groups as well as uh, black communities for uh, their right, for the, for, the, for the recognition of their right, for the recognition of their existence, for the end of invisibilization. Some people in the audience will remember that 
1992, so in the beginning of the 90s, you had a major process during which Spain uh, wanted to celebrate the 500 years of discovery because uh, 1492, 1992. And uh, the, that provoked, of course, uh, a, a, a reaction of political organizations of indigenous people and, and uh, Afro-descendants who reacted to that and said, you know, 500 years of exploitation. Uh, these were not, uh, we were not discovered. We, can, we could not discover ourselves and so on. So this was a very uh, a critique of the Eurocentric perspective that was behind the, the, these 500 years of, of discovery, the celebration. And so around, and thanks to, to, to that reaction of, the, of, of indigenous people and Afro-descendants, Spain, by the way, uh, then, uh, which initially didn't plan to fund activities for the, during the celebration that will give visibility to these organizations, decided to do so. And that reinforced, so there was a vigor uh, uh, of, uh, of these uh, in the early 90s, you know, in preparation of 92, a vigor of, of, of organizations and, the, and which were demanding more and more specifically the recognition of their rights. That's one factor. The, another factor as well is the fact that uh, many countries, the countries of the global north, uh, in Europe, North America, uh, who underwent a multicultural turn of their own in the 1970s, began demanding to Latin American nation states who were applying for loans or for... Uh, or for support for certain programs they might have had, demanded from these countries that we will help you with these things and these loans only once you adopt multicultural, uh, multiculturalism as a system uh, as a, uh, that will uh, uh, organize your societies in a more democratic way where the minorities, the ethno-racial minorities will have a say, which they didn't have so uh, until then. And so- What were these organizations, for example, some of the organizations that, that pushed this? Inter-American Band of Development, uh, IMF, World Bank, the various agencies of the UN, uh, UNESCO, etc. So uh, that became, uh, uh, this is known by, um, you know, the scholars who have been wor working on that, is that the, this push uh, where the, the influence of, the, the, of, of international influence from these organizations and countries, because you also had the, the, the bilateral arrangements uh, that uh, the United States might have with all of the Latin American countries, as well as France, Spain, and, and so on, and which were also demanding the same thing. So, and it's interesting because it's an economic push. Oh, yeah. It's more so, like, you want our money? Then you adopt multiculturalism. So in a way, it wasn't even done as a way to get them right. It was just as a way to, okay, let me just get the funds to do this. It's very that's interesting. Exactly right. That's exactly right. You have to know that in many countries, multiculturalism is adopted as a principle to organize uh, the functioning of the state during the period that has been called neoliberalism. And so uh, in the 1990s, uh, uh, most countries in the region adopt multiculturalism uh, while their governments, the, 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 their national governments, 
is dominated by political parties from the political right, uh, from the right, and uh, which is a bit contradictory, no? Yeah, yeah. Well, contradictory. One would think that multiculturalism is going to be adopted when you have governments dominated by political parties from the left. But no, in fact, it, it begins in, in the case of Ecuador, for instance, the first Ecuador has had two constitutions which, adopt, uh, which adopted uh, multiculturalism. And uh, the first one in 1998, during a political uh, a, a government uh, which was dominated by the social, uh, the, the political party called the Los Social Cristianos, the, the, the social Christians, which is on the right, the political right. And um, for instance, but it has been the case uh, even in Brazil and in, in Colombia. So this is the first wave in the, in the 2000s. Then you had a wave of uh, leftist uh, governments, which uh, eventually reinterpreted and, and went further in some of the reforms, multiculturalist reforms that took place. But so these, this multicultural turn then uh, was characterized by the adoption of uh, what we call um, legal instruments, uh, so laws, articles of laws or constitutions, which uh, of two kinds. One was to recognize and hopefully protect the collective rights of indigenous people and, um, and, and Afro-descendants, sometimes, but mostly for indigenous people, collective rights uh, about the, the use of their land, the, the territory, a bit like the reservation that you have here in the, in the United States for, for Native Americans. You've had um, the adoption of uh, uh, plural uh, legal systems where for certain issues, the legal system of indigenous people will be the one, uh, you know, in use uh, in some regions where in, on the territories of the of the indigenous people and so on. You know, ethno-education, the, the systems of education in which the language used is not Spanish, but it is uh, one of the uh, indigenous language used, uh, the indigenous language used in, the, in a, a specific community and so forth. So these are collective rights. And then, so you have two categories of, of, of these legal instruments, collective rights and those that uh, criminalize discrimination. So this is what we call anti-discrimination law or racial equality law. And so these, these, uh, these instruments um, have been adopted, but then of course they look good on paper and we, uh, what is done with them in the practice of the legal systems in the region is another thing. Yes, and I was reading about that. You sent me an article, which is very interesting, because what in the United States after the after the Civil War, they they created the Jim Crow laws to basically keep segregation in place, and in South Africa they had the apartheid laws. So those were actually written laws that were racist. And so you're saying in Latin America, the, even with laws, anti-racist laws in place, you have what's called a customary law, which is basically they're not written, but it's just basically. Um, something that's passed down and it's what actually happens in the country to, to basically keep a systematic racism in place. That's exactly right. Customary law was not changed at all by the, the in, in what I call that race regulation customary law was not changed a bit by the adoption of 
multiculturalism and the adoption of these legal instruments, the creation of these legal instruments. So, uh, because the application of these instruments is also, it continues to be polluted by race regulation customary law. So, so even today, in multicultural Latin America, where you have all of these laws uh, which, are, which aim to fight uh, discrimination and racism, and which aim to recognize uh, collective rights to indigenous people and Afro-descendants, despite the existence of these laws, the practice uh, is far from respecting the spirit and the content of these uh, legal instruments. Of these legal instruments. Now, interestingly enough, that's basically where your organization that you created comes in. So, like I mentioned in the beginning, Professor Harrier is the, is the director of OJALA, which is the Observatory for Justice of Afro-Descendants in Latin America. And I love what, you know, professor, the professor is doing with this organization because you're basically going to the root of the problem, which is basically helping people of Afro-descendants in the legal realm. And what he's creating, and he's going to explain better than me, is a basically a, a virtual repertory of all the legal cases having to do with discrimination against Afro-descendants in Latin America and putting them all together, right? So that when lawyers of different countries need to refer back to, and you can explain a little bit better, they can have this sort of database of collective uh, legal cases that have already taken place with regards to discrimination. Can you expand on that a little bit, please? <laughs> yeah, so uh, the Observatory of Justice for Afro-Descendants in uh, Latin America, Ojala, we function in three languages, uh, English, Portuguese, and Spanish. All of them are aimed at producing knowledge that will be useful to improve the lives of Afro-descendants. It's a, it's a knowledge about the functioning of the Latin American legal systems. And so we, the, the departure point of Ojala is that we, uh, we are aware of the existence of these legal instruments, but we want to see how are these legal instruments applied in the court of law and in the practice, the daily practice of each one of the Latin American justice systems, in each one of the uh, Latin American national context. And um, the, we, are, we, are, we are doing a number of things. So we are uh, uh, conducting research. We, we are in the process of uh, present, preparing a, a big uh, NSF uh, research grant and National Science Foundation research grant. Um, and we, we look at specific cases in, in, in each country and we look at the way these instruments were eventually applied or not, and why. And so, um, and that, uh, of course, allows us to perhaps uh, produce assessments of the application of these uh, instruments and, and also uh, uh, eventually propose policy uh, changes. But, but, so, but the, the, the major, uh, one of the major objectives, and you made reference to it, is that we want to create a, a digital uh, repository of legal archives, uh, of cases, legal cases, from all the regions, from each one of the Latin American national contexts, in which what we call ethno-racial law, which is this, this, this law 
that either criminalizes discrimination or recognizes uh, uh, collective rights were in use, were in which ethno-racial law was in use. And so we, we want to make these uh, archives of the, each case, uh, each relevant case, um, uh, in our website, in our repository, so that they can be available to researchers, to students, but also to attorneys who are litigating new cases for the defense of Afro-descendant rights in their respective countries. So in making the repository accessible online to these attorneys, we are in fact facilitating the creation of a a regional jurisprudence. Um, jurisprudence, that's the word that I had learned last time. Yeah. Can you tell them what jurisprudence means? So jurisprudence refers in the practice of uh, legal systems to uh, the way a particular law has been applied in the past. So when a judge or a jury needs to take make a decision in a given case uh, using a specific law, they must take into consideration how that law has been applied in the past. And that must inform the way they are going to apply that law in the present. So with human rights law, you may create a jurisprudence regionally, even though the instruments in use are not exactly the same, but nonetheless, the spirit and the, 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 of, of the application of these instruments uh, must, can be uh, useful to a particular attorney. Let me say it differently because it's a, it's a, it's a bit confusing. So if an, an attorney in uh, Uruguay wants to, uh, is litigating a case in which uh, an Afro-Uruguayan uh, person was a victim of racism, that attorney can look if there were other cases uh, of anti-black racism in any of the other countries of the region and eventually inspire himself and use references to these cases in order to solidify the argument he will be developing and presenting in court. Got it. So it's making reference to other 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 cases where it's they're similar cases. So in order to make their case stronger for the person being discriminated against. That's exactly right. And 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 and, uh, and, and so we will then make it so easy for attorneys litigating new cases to access these various cases because we we want to create a, a repository which will be easily accessible we we want to develop and we we are at the beginning of our of our life as an observatory we were created we created ourselves or the observatory in 2018 so we we still very uh, uh, new and so um, the the we will create a guide because of course the legal archives are organized differently in different national contexts, and so therefore we need you need to, to have a guide to make it easy for the visitor of the repository to. Uh, and so this is one of the things that we are going to be, uh, you know, looking for funding. We are we are very actively looking for funding in order to uh, 
to help uh, the production of uh, of this knowledge and make that knowledge access easily accessible to everyone. And knowledge is power, like they say. I think this oh, is yeah. so important because if you make this type of things accessible to the lawyers who need it, and a lot of times their you know their clients are poor and they need help in in being able to defend you know their client against maybe somebody who has more economic power they need access to this knowledge in order to make their cases stronger so i mean i think that this is something that will definitely um help the anti-racist movement and in latin america so i think this is of utmost importance oh yeah yeah and in a way you know we see i mean it's we are completely different but in a way we have some similarity what we want to do we what we would like to be able to do will be a bit what the one of the strategies that the NAACP here in the United States adopted uh, the NAACP the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People uh, in the in the 60s where as, as, uh, because this is an organization that that emerges with the, the movement for civil rights uh, of, of Afro-descendants and, and everyone uh, in this country, in the United States, uh, they, they had an arm that was regrouping attorneys and people who once, because once the laws are adopted, it doesn't mean that they're gonna be applied. So you need to have a strategy in order for the laws to be applied properly yeah and to work for the people with, with with respect from of the spirit of the law of the spirit of the legislators when they created that law yes to, to fight against against racism and so so um you know um this was a a major uh, strategy political legal strategy of the NAACP was to make sure and observe what's going on in the entire 50 states of the of the country and delegate and send attorneys to litigate and to have the laws actually applied and respected and respected that's so interesting now let's get let's go down from the law and speak a little bit about how this really affects people in real life because you know, you sent me an article that I was very, of course, since I'm Venezuelan, it was the first one I read. And it was, it was called The Multicultural Invisibility of Afro-Venezuelans and Their Alternative Legal Politics to Fight Racial Discrimination and Acquire Ethno-Racial Recognition. So this, the legal case against Cinecita. So I, I was reading and it was very interesting and because it was basically saying, and I, and I want you to correct me if I'm wrong, um, that basically there, there was a digital job advertisement that explicitly, explicitly requested employees with white skin. So that's, I mean, that's a racist job advertisement and it's out there. And it's interesting because when I told my parents about this, my, my parents were not shocked at all. They were like, Valentina, not only racism, but ageism. Like in Venezuela, they remember ads like, and they would even say the gender, like a woman between the age of 20 and, and 25, like the cutoff, you know, it was, it was also, it's very um, outright racism. It's not even hidden. It's really blatant. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and those things happen while many Venezuelan will nonetheless in some certain context, and I say Venezuelan, but it could be any Latin American. Person. Yes. Uh, will and 
and when I say Venezuelan or, or any Latin American country, I'm not talking about Afro-descendants. I'm talking about the, the non-Afro-descendants. Uh, many of them will say, oh, no, there is no racism here. There is no racism here. And so they, 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 that's why, you know, the best person to tell you if there is racism or not are the persons who are suffering it. Are the ones who are suffering, exactly. From it. Yeah, so, um, but um, the, no, so that's a case. Uh, and in that, that case, in that article, the, our colleague makes reference to the fact that there is an invisibility of Afro-descendants in the multicultural Venezuela because <clears throat> the multiculturalism in Venezuela is particular because it recognizes as a people, un, un pueblo, and the, the indigenous people, but not the Afro-descendants. Not the Afro-descendants. So, so, so Afro-descendants are not subject of, uh, of the law that, uh, that, that recognize collective rights. They have no existence as a collective in, uh, in Venezuela. That's very, yeah, and that's very interesting because the other thing that I saw that was like, wow, is how social media is really having an impact in giving a voice to people who prior to this were completely invisible. Is that correct? Because they were saying that basically social media were, the, you know, they were the ones to basically push for an anti-racist digital community. So you're able to have a medium that we didn't have before. Exactly, but but be careful. Social media can go anyway. So anyway, that's the problem. Uh, yes. Putting, uh, himself or herself on social media. You have both the KKK or the racist on the social media and the anti-racist on the, on, on the social media. So everyone is, uh, but that's of course, it's a space in which uh, you may uh, eventually engage in uh, very, act, you know, in, 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 in impactful activism. Uh, and uh, that was the case in, uh, in, in, in that, uh, that's what happened in that legal case is that the, the, the activism of, certain organizations and, and movement leaders was very successful in, in fighting against uh, anti-black racism. Now, the other thing is that I find very interesting and, in, you know, the conversation that we had uh, the previous uh, week and then me looking at all of this is a lot of these racist actions are very hidden, sort of like you said, blanketed, right? There's like a, there's a lot of things that are nuances that we don't even realize we have. Oh, exactly. Un racismo solapado, and which invades all aspects of daily life. Uh, of course, you have that. But on the other hand, in all countries of the region, you also have racism up in your face. And that's the, the, the you know, the, the cases that, um, the special issue that I, co that I guest edited, that I send you, um, is, is, is focused on legal cases in which the racism was uh, quite straightforward. Yes. Uh, I mean, I've seen, I, I've heard, and I've, I've heard, and I've seen some people that are not even let, allowed to go into banks because of the color of their skin. Oh, yeah. Or they're blatantly denied things such as loans and... And oh yeah, oh yeah, or or if you want an employee, a bank employee, usually uh, you're gonna ha you're not gonna have uh, black people uh, in many Latin American countries. Uh, they are, uh, the, the, the 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 teller, you know, the, the the person in the as a bank teller, 
um, you know, uh, and, and so on. There are many young people in, 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 in a number of uh, countries complain about, about that. And thanks to these laws, to the existence of these laws, they could, if they have the right social and financial capital, um, uh, eventually go to court in order to seek for redress and, and, and put an end to these practices. But most people who are subjected to that don't have the time to do that, do not have, they don't know how to approach an attorney and, and prefer to uh, then, you know, find a job if they can't get that job because uh, of racism, they will continue because they are, you know, in need of uh, feeding their families and so on. And you can't, uh, you know, stop your life uh, all the time to, to fight racism. You know, that's, that's the, the privilege like us in academia or, or those who have, uh, you know, the, the jobs we have, we can, we have the, the, you know. The brain space to be able to discuss these subjects. And yes. <laughs> yeah, and also the time, we, we can, that's part of our job, you yes. know, and, and the, the people who are, uh, you know, looking to feed their families and so on, uh, they, 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 they don't have spare time for that. Yeah. And that's why it's so important for, you know, and I know a lot of people are talking about this right now. That's why it's so important for people, for not only Blacks to talk about this subject. I think it takes a collective group of people to all become aware of the subject and to help lift everybody up. So that, because it's not, it can't only be, you know, and I, I feel the same way even for like sexism. It can't just be women fighting for women. There has to come a point where men also give women a voice and where white people give black people a voice. It has to be a collective, a collective effort, endeavor, yeah. yes, to end all sorts of discrimination. Um, pro professor, it's, you know, and I want to say, I, I want to touch this uh, at, at the end of the podcast is what are the subtle things? Because, you know, Changing the world to, you know, to most people seems impossible. But I think that there are certain things that can be done in households that are small things, but they're actually things that matter. And I asked you the other time, I said, I have a question. Is the word mulatto a bad word? Because as far as I knew, it was a term of endearment. In Venezuela, we use it all the time. And then when you told me what it actually meant, I was horrified. And I thought about it all week long. You know, the, the words like this, tell everybody what the word, where the word mulatto yeah. comes from. Yeah, so that, that comes from, uh, of, of course, the observation that many of the vocabularies that have been in use in the 20th and 21st century are in fact inherited from 19th century scientific racism as it developed uh, in, in, uh, in Europe and, 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 and in North America. So um, mulatto... You know, the biological sciences were not always what they are today. They, 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 you know, in the 19th century, the, uh, the no biological knowledge was very uh, limited, but that didn't prevent some people to produce theories which were uh, racist theories, which put, you know, black people uh, at the bottom and white people on top, and a few people, uh, you know, different other people in the middle. And so, um, but uh, mulatto, so comes from comes from the observation of the fact that when a when a horse, you know, if a horse mate mates with a donkey, it will provoke, it will produce a mule, and the mules, in fact, are cross between two species of, of animals, and the mule cannot reproduce, 
they cannot reproduce. So uh, if you want new mules, you're going to have to go back to the horse and the, the donkey. And, and so they were convinced that the cross or the mixing between a white person and a black person were, was uh, creating being that uh, they interpreted as, uh, you know, uh, uh, comparable to the mule. Yeah, and that's, that's horrible. The term mule, mulato, mulata comes from. Is the, it comes from these theories uh, that existed in the 19th century. Uh, about uh, the crosses between different species. Well, you know, when you actually know where something comes from and what the actual context is, it changes and it makes you want to, you know, obviously change your vocabulary. That's why it's so important to have awareness about these topics. Any, like, any other words or, well, there's so many racist terms that we use. I mean, we, you talked about one of them, el blancamiento, the, the whitening of the race, the bettering of the race, you know, um, you know, make your, you know, make your race whiter to, to better it in, in sorts of, it's, it's very widely commonly used in, in Latin America. That's for sure a Latin American thing. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a obvious uh, uh, um, racist, uh, um, you know, it's based on, uh, on this uh, racial hierarchy. Yeah, of course. You want to move away from the bottom and, uh, and, and go to the t- yeah and yeah, move up yeah. exactly but 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 one thing that one has to really really if we want to make a, a difference in the world and particularly in the region in latin america is that uh, everyone should carefully uh, you know listen to uh, those who suffer from uh, discrimination and, and 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 racial hatred but um, but also we all individually um, must um, deconstruct and destroy the stereotypes. Absolutely. The stereotypes hurt us so much. Yeah, they continue to circulate uh, uh, innocently, uh, you know, in the press or in, 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 uh, in soap operas, in, 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 in TV shows and in, in, in a number of uh, in songs and so forth you know talking about songs when when i right before i i you know i i I, uh, turned on zoom to do our interview i thought of a song that you know for anybody that says latin america doesn't have racism i mean this is the song I, i i don't know if you've heard it's by el grupo nietzsche and it's called han cogido la cosa it's a very famous salsa song a very good one uh Que para reírse para reírse se burlan de mí han cogido la cosa que para reírse se agarran a mí que tengo grande la boca y la nariz que nada bueno no me encuentran a mí que yo soy prieto que soy carabalí pero orgulloso me siento y así and then he goes on to say if you're a white man you're an athlete if you're a black man you know you're 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 a criminal and it, but it, he he's very explicitly saying like it, it brings awareness to the to the subject and i think it's very um telling of our society you know oh, no mami que será lo que quiere el negro no que será lo que quiere yes, oh, my god 
Yeah, that's another song. No, there are so many songs. Like, there are so, so many songs. Yeah, uh, so many. No le pegue a la negra. No le pegue a la negra. That talks about colonialism. And no, no, that that one is a is a critique. Is a critique of course, of, of it's racism. a critique. This one I told you too is also a critique. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, so uh, there are so many anti-black racism is is found in, in so many, in, even in, 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 in advertisement, you know. Um, um, in the beauty queen pageants, professor, I was, I was talking to my, to, my, to my friend Jorna, she's from Colombia, and she was like saying, Valentina, how many, because like Venezuela, for example, like was always so proud of their beauty queens, but how many of those beauty queens, you know, were of Afro descent? It's but almost you, like... Yeah, I've also I've also written on beauty queens. Oh, really? You see, <laughs> in in, uh, in in but mostly in Ecuador. You know, uh, in nineteen, I think it was in nineteen ninety six. There was in Ecuador the first black uh, woman elected uh, reina del Ecuador. So I wrote a piece on that, and uh, and and also how she came to be and what she faced once elected you know uh, monica shala is, is her name uh, oh we need to attach that one to the blog too oh I'll, I'll i'll send you all of these pieces uh after after we finish the, the conversation but um yeah you know so so anti-black racism finds its place everywhere and so i would say uh, you know something also that i'm somewhat encouraged although not naively, I'm too old for that, is that <laughs> right now in the United States is that with the, the movement yes. that took place since the assassination of George Floyd and, uh, and in Atlanta a couple of days ago and so on, is that you do now have a, a disposition of American society as never before, I, 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 I would suspect, that uh, to listen and to really realize the, what it means to suffer from anti-black racism every day. I mean, you cannot, do you understand, live your life normally. You have to constantly, you, you can think about yourself as being, you know, for instance, a young man, I'm a young man. But if you are in certain situation, you must make an effort to, to take into consideration how a policeman is looking at you. He's not looking at you as a teenager who is doing things. He's looking at you as a dangerous, um, do you understand, a predator, social predator. Uh, a young white man will be able to, to do things that a young, uh, a, a young white man will be able to do things that a young black man cannot do. You see the case of these two young men who are arrested for uh, jaywalking in a street where there is no sidewalk. And so where the hell do you want them to, to walk, <laughs> if not on the street? So um, do you understand? Uh, uh, um, this is quite surprising. I mean, it's quite edifying and that it's, it, that doesn't happen to young white men when they walk on the street. Do you understand? So, so this, is, this is a reality that the, the, the people who are not subject, subjected to, to, to anti-black racism to really listen and make an effort to put themselves in the place of the of the the mothers and the brothers and the and uh, you, you understand the, the, the children and the, and 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 the, 
and uh, who are suffering that 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 uh, that, that constant uh, you know uh, aggression and, and and negativity yes i think that's the key for Man, human unity in general is for us to be able to listen to one another because we all have different experiences. And when we're able to put, like you, like you said, when we're able to put ourselves in the other person's shoe, see life from that other person's perspective and really listen, then we're able to, uh, to come together and say, you know what? Wow. I I, I, yeah, I don't want that for you. And not only that, it's like, I can't possibly imagine what it must feel like, but it sounds awful. Exactly. That's exactly right. And that's the good thing about the, 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 the present moment is that, uh, it, uh, you know, eventually gives us hope that uh, uh, things might change because uh, you see the, the multiraciality, the multiracial dimension of these rallies. Uh, these marches, yes. not just black people in the, the street, there are a whole bunch of different people who say, the young people, they say, we don't want that. That's not the way, this is we. And then yes. some people uh, didn't realize that these things were happening. There, there were some, I even see, seen on, the, which is, you know, as a black person, surprising, but, yeah, but not so surprising. There, there, are, there are white people who might not have realized that Things were that bad, you know. Yes, yeah, and I think this subject is a is a, a subject I'm seeing that causes a lot of shame, a lot of shame, even in you know, on both sides. You know, there's like the side that realizes that their descendants were despicable, that they did things that were horrible to other human beings, and that carries a lot of shame for it. And then there's a shame of not feeling like, well, when am I going to be seen? When am I going to be enough? Why do I have to prove myself and other people don't have to, don't seem to have to do the same? Why am I constantly fighting for, for approval? Why am I constantly fight, fighting for visibility, like you said? Um, exactly. These are very, and I think also we need to keep the momentum for this cause. I can't, we can't just let this be a little moment in time. I really do think it needs to be a wave that continues to move forward. And the discussion needs to be continued so that our children's generation is better. And then their gener their children's generation is better and so on and so forth. Exactly. Thank you so much for being on with us. I'm going to be posting also for anyone who wants to donate to this amazing cause to Ojala. I'm going to be putting the link on the website and also the links of the different articles go ahead and then the, link, the link not just the link the the the, the indications i i placed because uh, we ojala exists within the latin american and caribbean center lac mm -hmm. and um, so there is a way you remember i gave you the steps on when on how to be able to donate, yes. To so donate we're gonna. What they have to do and what they should do is also send me an email. They deposit the money there if they if they are willing to donate for this great cause that Ojala represents. And so they they donate there, and then they eventually send me an email telling me that they have deposited. Because if not, we don't know. There are many causes for lack. Okay. And uh, the only way to mark that donation for Ojala is to send me an email. Uh, Perfect. I think that the donation has been made. You understand? Sounds good. But this is a really good cause. I mean, it's, it has to do with the law, with changing and creating, like you said, a, a database of knowledge and to really, to really make something 
that's tangible difference in Latin America. Also, if you guys want to comment on this blog post, it's going to be under mamasconganas.com forward slash 37. Thanks again, Professor. I know this is not the last time we're going to see each other. <laughs> my, email, my email is jraye. You'll put my email on the jraye at fiu.edu. Yes, and raye is R-A-H-I-E-R. Exactly. Thank you so much. My pleasure. It's Valentina. Espero te gustó este episodio de nuestro podcast. If you liked it, or if any of our content has inspired you in any way, I'd be ever so grateful if you showed some amorcito by reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you listen to us. Every single review will help us reach more mamacitas so they can live their life con muchas ganas. It's because of you, our listeners, that we're able to create contenido para otras Latinas. Un millón de gracias por suscribirte, escuchar y compartir nuestro podcast. Si tienen preguntas, comentarios y más, pueden visitar nuestra página web mamasconganas.com or follow us on social media at mamasconganas. You can also write me directly at info at mamasconganas.com. Hasta la próxima. Es Valentina recordándote. Don't be a mama con drama. Mm -mm. Let's be mamas con ganas. Besitos.